Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by Joseph Tekanovich. He gardens in Williamsburg, Virginia. We have him here today to talk about his book on rock gardening and a new book he's written on growing food. Welcome, Joseph. Hi, it's great to be here. Great to have you. So we've known each other for a few years just from garden communicators, garden writing circles, and garden speaking circles. So I just wanted to check in with you first and say, how is it going? It's going, it's going pretty good. Um, yeah, I think when we first met, I was living in Michigan mm-hmm. still. Um, and so now I'm down in Williamsburg, Virginia. So in very much enjoying the mid-Atlantic winters rather than the Michigan winters. It's, it's been a nice, it's been a nice transition to a warmer climate for sure. Hmm. Yeah. And is that why you moved to Williamsburg? Is that what brought you down to our area? Uh, no, my uh, husband moved down from my husband's work. He got a job as a professor at the College of William and Mary. So that, that's what brought us here. He had another, he also interviewed at a university in Arizona. And I was very glad to get that we wound up with the one where it rains actually sometimes. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was going to say it must have been a sigh of relief. <laughs> I was like, yes, I can garden there. I'm not going to have to learn all about cactus. I can speak. <laughs> Yeah, and and the travel would have been hard back and forth to talks and things. Yeah. But yeah, so we're glad to have you in the area. And so you've been in Williamsburg for a few years now. Um, how does that compare to gardening back in Michigan? It's definitely been a learning curve. So we've been here, I guess, three years now. Um, and yeah, the, the length and the heat of the summer has definitely been an adjustment. Um, so, so, but pretty much most everything I could grow in Michigan, I could grow here is a few things like delphiniums, you know, that are not really going to be happy here. Um, but mostly it's just been learning a whole lot of new plants, the camellias and all, all the other things that were not hardy. So it's, it's been really fun. And for loyal listeners of the Garden DC podcast, we have mentioned delphiniums before, Joseph, <laughs> <laughs> as one of the few plants that we are like, mm. We we're blessed with a, a moderate climate and being able to be on that straddle that line where we can have lilacs and bulbs, but we can also have hot summer edibles like okra. But yeah, delphiniums escapes most of us in the mid Atlantic. Yeah, I mean honestly, Michigan was almost too hot for them. Even they really do not like summer heat at all. Um, but there's a lot of, a lot a lot of other things to enjoy down here that more than make up for it. Well, before we dive into your two books, let's talk about you for a minute and how you got into horticultural uh, writing, speaking, and um, growing things. And I know that you've been described as one of America's foremost young horticulturists. And how does that feel? Just kind of weird, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. so yeah, I got into gardening. I really loved growing plants. I was really interested in growing plants from the time I was a really little kid, like five or six. I really wanted uh, flowers and seeds. 
Um, but I didn't grow up in a gardening family, so I didn't really learn about, um, you know, my, some of my extended family were gardeners, but they live far away. My parents are not really gardeners. Um, so I really got into gardening sort of as a teenager, mostly learning from books, and then went to school for it and sort of, uh, you know, once I, once I got my feet into it, just loved it and haven't looked back. Hmm. And what were your first plants that you grew as a child? My, my, my earliest memory, one of my earliest memories is growing marigolds from seed. Um, and I remember my first day of kindergarten, I had to go out and say goodbye to my marigold plants before I went to kindergarten so they wouldn't miss me. So that's like one of the earliest things. Um, and I think because of that, I want my marigolds to be really, really tall because in my memory, they're like huge because I was so small. And I'm always frustrated when I get marigolds now and they're like, you know, little short things. It's like, I, I want something that I can look up at, but I haven't found, you know, a six foot tall marigold yet to grow and recreate that childhood experience. Have you tried those uh, big duck yellow and big duck orange series of marigolds? Yeah. I mean, I, I always want the tallest of them. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I still haven't found one that I can look up at. You know? Yeah, I mean, not like, quite <laughs> that tall. <laughs> not quite that tall. But, <laughs> but those are pretty shrub-like. Those yeah, are they're really pretty, big. Yeah, yeah they're, they're definitely, they definitely give me more of the, the feel that I want from my marigolds, which is size above all. <laughs> so aside from marigolds, do you have a favorite plant that you like to grow from seed? Oh, goodness. I love growing. I mean, I grow a lot of things from seed. Um, I'm trying to think a favorite plant from seed. I mean, right now, I really love uh, plant breeding, which is, you know, my, my first book is about plant breeding. Um, so I grow a lot of like roses and gladiolus and all sorts of things that you don't usually grow from seed because they don't come true from seed. But I really like seeing that variation. So right now I just, I just planted out like 160 rose seedlings. Um, from a breeding project. So I really, I love stuff that's not going to be predictable from seed. I really enjoy seeing what, what sort of diversity pops up from those sort of complex hybrid seed populations. Wow. Did you say 150 rose seedlings? Yeah, 160. I started with, wow. with 3,000, but only 160 are making it into the garden. <laughs> only 160. Yeah. So, uh, Describe your gardening space. Is it a single family home, quarter acre lot, or what, where are you growing? So right now, yeah, I am gardening. I bought a house about two years ago. Is it two years ago? A year and a half ago? Um, so we have about like three quarters of an acre um, at the house, which is all shaded. Um, and then I also, I have a friend who has about up the, up the road, about a couple miles who had, they have like 11 acres and they let me have a plot there in the sun. So my sun garden with most of my vegetables and all kinds of other projects is not at the house. And then I'm also gardening at the house for all the shade plants. It's so nice of your friend to, to let you garden on a, on a nice sunny property. Yeah, it's really great. And it's something, this is like the first time I've like owned property because I was in college and then grad school. And then my husband was in grad school. So we were moving around and living in apartments. So I'm really used to borrowing land from other people. I've gardened on so many places that were not my own property. Um, so I really find, yeah, if I ask around, just, I, I, you know, every time we move, I'm just like putting out on social media, all my friends, like, do you know anybody who has property? And uh, I always have had luck finding people who are happy to let me, you know, use some un unused space on their property. And, you know, I give them some vegetables and flowers and stuff along the way. And, and it works out pretty good. Yeah, that's a great end of the deal is to to get some extra vegetables and flowers for just renting out, so to speak, land that you don't want to mow. Yeah. <laughs> or I maintain. Like this, 
if you yeah a lot of areas there's people a lot of people have property that they're not doing anything with and usually they're pretty actually delighted to you know have it put to use and and, and some gardening on it so it's one of those things that i feel like people if people think they don't have space to garden i'm like you have not you can always find space to garden from whether it's community garden plots or some cities will have vacant lots to let you rent or um, friend asking around your friend network uh, like there's so much land around in the u.s i feel like you can always find somewhere that someone's going to let you grow some plants Mm-hmm. And even a, a, you know, a veteran gardener who isn't able to maintain their whole garden anymore would probably welcome that assistance. So, yeah, my first when I was in uh, college, when I first started college, I was looking for a place to garden while I was like living in the dorms. And it was, you know, a friend of a friend of a friend was an older woman who you know had a vegetable garden that she couldn't really take care of anymore. So she let me sort of step in and halfway take over that, which was fantastic. I loved it. That's my secret plan, Joseph, in my dotage. You know, <laughs> in thirty or forty years, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, hmm, young people come and garden all this. <laughs> yeah. I, I love it, and it's such a great mm-hmm. way to make gardening more social, more connected. You know, so you have you meet people and learn from other gardeners. I think it's a really fantastic opportunity that I think not enough people take advantage of. Like mm-hmm. people think, oh, I don't have a space to garden. It's like you don't need to own property to be mm-hmm. able to do something really fun. Yeah, I think some people have the mindset that it has to be a forever garden too. And I'm always telling community garden groups that, you know, if you can get a place that's going to be developed in three to five years, but is sitting just vacant now, it doesn't have to be a plot, a forever plot. It could just be a, let's get that a few years in plot. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're doing vegetables, you know, they're all annual crops. I mean, except for asparagus and a few things, you know, you, you can put some tomatoes in anywhere and, and it doesn't need to be, you know, 20 years down the line, still a garden. Mm-hmm. And speaking of vegetables, so your newest book is the comic book guide to growing food, step-by-step vegetable gardening for everyone. So what brought this book about and why a comic book guide? So um, the genesis of it was what well, really started with I've been doing these sort of silly stick figure cartoons, like little comics, one panel comic strips, basically, uh, for Fine Gardening magazine on their social media. So if you follow Fine Gardening on Facebook or Instagram about once a week, I have these like goofy little cartoons that I post. Um, and I was having fun doing that. And then I sort of started that. So I was like, where, where is there? Where can I go from this? And I started sort of exploring this world of what they call nonfiction graphic novels or these like educational, informative uh, comic books. And it seemed like such a perfect fit for gardening because gardening is so visual and doing it in the form of a comic book is really a great way to communicate sort of these basic principles of gardening really efficiently with lots of visuals to explain the techniques and everything. Um, And in a way that's like fun and accessible and really easy for a lot of people um, to get into. Um, So once I sort of got into that idea, um, I just got really excited by it. And I really, really love how it's come together because I feel like when you pick it up, you see like this comic book with a story and it's kind of silly and funny sometimes, but I, but actually like uh, packed like a lot of information in there. And so I feel like it's this interesting way to really communicate and share a lot of really good information about gardening in a way that's fun, that's approachable, um, and maybe appeals to sort of a different demographic than the typical gardening book. Um, So it kind of came together organically and then through discussions with my publisher, how we sort of like uh, the specifics of how it's put together and organized. Um, 
but I'm really, really happy with how it's come out. And I think it's like such an interesting, like a different way to communicate sort of that basic vegetable gardening stuff that's been, you know, there's a lot of books written about it, but I think this is a fresh take on it and a really different way to sort of communicate that information. And I love the look of it. I think it's just beautiful. And so you partnered with an artist. It looks like Liz Anna Kozik. Am I saying her name correctly? Yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. How did you How did you get paired with Liz? Was it through your publisher? Yeah, the publisher found her. So, you know, I came to them with the idea. And then I was like, I, my drawing level is stick figures, <laughs> literally. Um, so I was like, I want to find someone to partner with uh, as the illustrator. And they found her when we went talked about different options but she's really i mean i love i'm so over the moon with how it's come out her art is really really beautiful and she also has training in botany and horticulture or botany more specifically um so even though it's very cartoony and very fun she does know a lot about plants enough that flipping through it even though it's cartoony you can recognize the specific plants and and they're really sort of there's like a botanical accuracy to the drawings as well as just like beautifully done, um, beautifully illustrated. Um, and she, it was, yeah, she was just a joy to work with. It was, it's weird because my part of writing it was putting together what almost like a movie script, you know, it was just like basically dialogue. And then aside saying like me writing out descriptions of kind of what I wanted the images to look like. So I sent this like box block of text off to her. And then it was really fun to see the drafts come in of her illustrating and really bringing all my ideas and the story to life. And so it was, it was really, really fun collaborating with, with her on the project. That sounds like so much fun. And I do love her illustrations because they're not botanical illustrations, but you're right. You know exactly that this is parsley, this is thyme, this is a tomato versus a pepper. She does a great job with that. Yeah, I think it's like it, it, it makes, again, it like walks that line of like, it's not uh, like stuffy or um, academic feeling, but actually it is like a lot of information packed into the illustrations and the text. Hmm. You know what it reminds me of too is, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with these, but at the turn of the 19th and 20th century, there used to be a thing called cigarette cards that you would collect with your pack of cigarettes. It was just like a little one inch by three inch card. And they would have series of, it would be rugby players or the latest horse buggy or something. And they actually did gardens how-to series. So it was like an illustration on one side. One side had the illustration and the other side had like a garden how-to or a tip on it. And the reason I know about these is because my brother sells antique prints, mostly British things. And cigarette cards pop up in a state ephemera, you know, <laughs> all the time. Like there's all these old scrapbooks of somebody who smoked in the family, you know, un- great uncle Joe, who who put all his cigarette cards in one album. <laughs> so, it's, But the artwork was actually beautiful. And, and I looked at the garden tips and I was like, all of these apply today. Every single one of them. Wow. Yeah, so they were like from pruning a rose series. They would, you know, you needed all 20 cards to to get the whole process, <laughs> you know, to planting tomatoes. It was great. Huh. Well, I've, I've never heard of those. That's that's so uh, hard to, uh, 
don't think that would work today. Smoke no. all the packs of cigarettes to learn how to grow yes. your garden. I was like, w- one more reason to buy cigarettes that we don't need. But yes, <laughs> I could definitely see it being inserted into something else, you know, like right, that, totally. that yeah. little collection of things. And people love to collect them these days and get like a set of 10 and frame them, you know, with a, a nice cutout mat and things. So, you know, they would have like a series of American songbirds or a series mm-hmm. of butterflies, anything that you could you could make a set out of a cigarette card collection was made out of. <laughs> and then and then it became bubblegum cards. So I guess that was the transition there. The, the, they still did the sports figures and movie uh, cards, but the rest kind of fell away. Well, we'll have to, we'll have to come up with a collectible version of this book for people. Yeah. <laughs> Just like little, little discreet frames would be perfect for that. Yeah. So um, with the, with the new book and it says specifically it's for everyone. Who do you think is the main audience, the new gardeners who are coming on in the last year or two, or people who, who maybe who are returning to vegetable gardening? So I wrote it, the the person in my mind was somebody who's never done any vegetable gardening before. I really set out to think, okay, if you've never, you're interested in vegetable gardening, but you know absolutely nothing, I wanted this book to be, give you everything you would need to get, have a successful, like first year in your vegetable garden. So it's not like exhaustive information about everything you're ever going to need about vegetable gardening, but just the key, like a key step-by-step process to get you you know through your first year vegetable gardening from planning to picking the site to preparing the you know the site shopping choosing varieties harvesting all that stuff um so really aimed at beginning gardeners um but what's been interesting is since it's come out i've had lots of people who are who've reviewed it or just you know send me emails or whatever saying oh you know i've been gardening for years i got this for somebody else but actually flipping through it i you know i learned some things about root pruning or some of the other stuff so I definitely like I thought the target audience was was really totally novice of vegetable gardeners, but I think um, if you you know a lot of people can learn something new from it, um, if even if you've been gardening for a while. Hmm. Well, pivoting to your previous book and the topic of this podcast rock gardening, and we have to make the joke here right that it's not actually rocks that we're gardening. <laughs> Whenever I tell somebody about rock gardening, they want to, <laughs> they picture literally, I guess, a Fred Flintstone type of landscape. Yeah. So it's not rock gardening, not growing rocks specifically, but growing plants among rocks. I mean, the sort of the origins of rock gardening are, um, or the, like the inspiration for it is um, landscapes you would see at the sort of high altitudes in the mountains where it's rocky soils and there's these interesting small alpine plants growing amongst the rocks and the cracks and crevices between the stones. So it's growing plants that like growing in these sort of rocky conditions, not growing rocks in particular. Hmm. So sometimes it might be called alpine gardening. Does it have other nicknames to it? Yeah, alpine gardening, rock gardening, those are probably the two, the two big ones. Yeah. So the purists back in the UK, you know, it's like the sort of very traditional one is very specifically growing alpine plants that are native to high elevations. Um, sort of the modern take on rock gardening interprets that a lot more broadly and looks to plants native to dry climates, plants native to all sorts of other habitats that happen to have that small compact um, growth habit. Um, so it doesn't have to be strictly alpines and certainly in sort of a hot summer climate, like where we are, a lot of those true alpine plants aren't going to thrive, but you can still sort of create that 
rocky mountain type type uh, visual effect in the garden with a lot of other sort of small compact plants that like those that well-drained soil and that rock garden sort of conditions. And so many of us in our area are blessed, I'm going to say the word blessed, with clay <laughs> soil. <laughs> so heavy clay soil and rock gardening is not going to be the best in those conditions. So how would you um, advise somebody to start off a rock garden who, who might just have shade conditions or clay conditions? So the real key to the you know, rock gardening in general is good drainage. And even if you have heavy clay soil, the the way to get good drainage is to build up. So essentially, most rock gardens, whether you're on clay soil or not, is building essentially like a raised bed of mounding up over your existing soil, a mixture of usually sand and gravel, so a very well-drained soil mix. And actually, a heavy clay soil under that really can be beautifully good conditions for a lot of these plants because um, they'll grow, they'll send down deep roots through that well-drained soil layer um, and they and to access the more the water and nutrients in that clay layer below. So building up a well-drained layer of soil keeps them from rotting out from too much water, um, but that clay soil underneath is, provides a reservoir of moisture and nutrients that they can access with deep roots. Um, so you can grow a lot of plants that hate wet clay soils, even if you have a clay soil, simply by building up a sort of a, a raised bed or even in a container, uh, you know, even if it's just maybe six inches or so of a well-drained soil mix over that clay and you can grow a lot of hardy succulents and cactus and all those kinds of things that hate a wet clay soil really, really successfully. Yeah, I was going to ask about containers. Um, what type of containers do you recommend if, say, you were just on a, a balcony or a patio garden? Yeah, I think rock gardening containers is like a really great option because, um, a lot of the plants are small and sort of it sort of focuses on these very small compact plants and so you can grow a lot of really interesting plants in a container um, and make a sort of miniaturized landscape in a container the like most traditional rock garden containers are what are called troughs so the the oldest ones in england were hand carved stone troughs that were used for feeding or watering animals that were repurposed as garden containers but you really can use almost any container. A lot of times people like to do the hypertufa, the faux stone um, containers that you can make, but really any container you can turn into a rock gardens type uh, container garden. Um, again, simply by using a really well-drained soil mix. Um, so in my containers for rock garden plants, I usually take my typical soil mix I put in a container and mix that <clears throat> about 50-50 with a coarse sand or gravel mix to really give it good drainage. Um, and then you can grow a lot of different cool rock garden plants in a container. For our listeners, that vocabulary word that Joseph dropped was hypertufa. Yes. <laughs> so um, we'll put that in the show notes. And there's lots of um, YouTube videos and instructional videos online of how to create your own hypertufa mix. What do you put in your mix or do you even make your own hypertufa, Joseph? I have done a little bit. I don't make a lot of hypertufa, but generally it's Portland cement, um, which is the binding agent that, that's used to make concrete. So to make concrete, you use Portland cement and sand and gravel. To make hypertufa, you take Portland cement and then uh, sand and peat moss or perlite. Um, so it creates sort of a stone that looks a like, but is very lightweight and porous. Um, and so you can easily shape it into sort of containers that, especially when they've aged a little and grown some moss and lichens on them, will look very much like a stone container, but are lighter weight and easier to move around. 
Um, so yeah, there's lots of videos and information online and it can be a really fun project, you know, for a, a rainy day or a winter's day uh, to, to make your own containers that way. Yeah, and it's so fun to make the just the shape and size you want, like say from an old um, styrofoam cooler, or I've even used um, the little smallest size, I'm going to say Amazon box, uh-huh. <laughs> Make, makes really cute ones too. And those are just fun to pop a little bulb or something in. Yeah, they're really fun to play with because you can, yeah, like you said, you can use almost anything as a mold to build them over, or um, you can even freehand them over, I, you know, people make really big ones. Um, so it can be really fun to play with and, and get, it's an easy way to get sort of interestingly shaped and sized containers. And you can, some people add, you can add like dyes to the mix to get different colors. Um, there's all kinds of interesting things to do with it. And there's also some people do take a styrofoam box and just paint a thin layer of that hypertufa mix over the outside of it. So visually it still gives you that hypertufa tufa effect, but it weighs almost nothing because it's basically just a styrofoam box. Um, so there's lots of cool options there to explore um, with Hypertufa. Whether you want to do rock gardening or not, you can then put your petunias in it if you want. Um, but it can be a really fun, really fun thing to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say it depends on what the substrate mix that you put in. So it doesn't have to be rock garden. It could just be a contained garden, but yeah. look, but look really great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> So for different styles of rock gardening, I want to throw a couple out there just so you can define them for the listeners. And the first is a rockery. So how would you uh, define what a rockery is? So uh, first I'll say some of these terms are kind of terms I've put on, <laughs> trying to, uh, me trying to put a taxonomy onto the diversity of rock gardening. So not all rock gardeners would necessarily recognize uh, you know, a rockery in the same way, but to me, that's sort of a classic style of rock gardening, which is essentially a raised area, well-drained soil with some rocks scattered around it, um, sort of an informal um, look to it. So it's kind of the very classic uh, style of rock gardening if people have seen older rock gardens. Mm-hmm. Um, it can take a lot of shapes, but it's pretty just sort of rocks artfully scattered over a sort of a raised area of well-drained soil. Hmm. And then uh, there's a scree garden. So that's actual geological area a scree but how is that defined in rock gardening yeah so a scree is a formation that you get on in mountainous landscapes where there's been erosion and gravel has come down and it's a very deep layer of sort of coarse gravel soils and there's some plants that are very specifically adapted to growing in a scree Um, so in the garden this we're building up a deeper layer of really coarse gravel, unlike sort of a traditional rock garden where you'd be mixing more sand and regular soil in there so it holds more water. This is very uh, open mix. Um, and then usually with water flowing underneath it so, or moist soils underneath. Um, so I would say scree con- conditions are pretty specialized. If you're just dipping your toes in rock gardening, I wouldn't like jump to the scree um, because it's going to be a very specific types of plants that are adapted to those conditions that will thrive there and a lot of other things that that really won't um so it's a little bit of like an advanced technique but if you there's some specific really cool plants that will grow in in scree conditions Hmm. yeah it does sound much more complicated than some of the other methods rock gardening is fun because um you can get into it very easily and it's a great thing to explore if you just have a balcony and you want to do some containers and grow some cool little plants but you can definitely also, you can keep learning about it forever and get really into these very specific alpine habitats and stuff. So um, yeah, the sort of 
the extremes of it can be pretty overwhelming for beginners. Um, and you certainly don't need to dive into that right away. Um, but there, but if you really do get into sort of, you want to nerd out about something, there's a lot of things to nerd out about in the world of rock gardens. And I would say next to container rock gardens, maybe the next accessible style is the rock wall. So that if you inherited, got really lucky in your property <laughs> to have a rock wall, which I don't have, but, um, or could build one up and plant, you know, a little rock wall garden. That might be one of the easier ways to, to start at it. Do you think? Yeah. Rock walls are really beautiful. And again, a, a classic sort of style of, of, of growing plants. It does really depend on how the wall is built. Um, so the, the walls that are built really to grow plants on them tend to have rocks on either side and actually soil in the center of it um, so that the plants can then grow into so either as a retaining wall or a freestanding wall it's grown plant, built thicker with soil in the center there between the rocks um, <clears throat> but you so if you have an existing wall it may not be suitable for growing plants in but if you're certainly building a rock wall you can easily make it great habitat for growing all kinds of cool plants and really create this very interesting vertical garden um, of these plants growing up in the crevices and cracks between the stones. Hmm. And speaking of crevices, so the final style that I'm aware of in rock gardening is the crevice garden. And that seems to be all the rage now amongst rock gardeners. Crevice gardens are definitely the trendy, the trendy style of rock gardening right now. And, and I think for really good reason, it's a really, it's a really interesting and fun style. Um, which actually originated um, in the Czech Republic. So for some reason, the Czechs are like the gods of rock gardening. I guess it's a you know pretty mountainous country, um, <clears throat> and the crevice garden is essentially taking large flat rocks, almost like rocks you use for paving stones, and setting them vertically um, with soil then between each vertical rock. So almost like if you had a book um, with its spine down and facing up the pages would be the, the stones and the spaces between the pages would be these crevices that you grow your plants in. Um, it sounds kind of odd, um, but it's actually a really cool way to grow plants because what happens when you plant, you plant them, these, you know, in these narrow crevices between these two large flat rocks, when the plants start to grow their roots out, they reach out, they hit those rocks and the rocks guide their roots very, very deep. Um, and so you get these very deep root systems growing down into the crevices rather than spreading out shallowly, which um, really makes them very drought tolerant, um, <clears throat> uh, better at resisting sort of extreme heat and other temperature extremes because they're a deep root system that's sheltered from the, the extremes of the weather. Um, but you're also putting a really well-drained soil mix in those crevices so they're not sitting wet, they're not rotting out when it rains. Um, so crevice gardens are really like a fun way to grow all kinds of stuff that you think you couldn't grow in your climate. Um, so when I moved down here, I brought with me a lot of, of alpine daphnes, and daphnes are like notorious for hating too much water. And everyone said there's no way you can grow alpine daphnes in the mid-Atlantic region. They're just going to rot out and die. But in the crevice garden that I, I built a small crevice garden, they've done fantastic um, because they have a very well-drained soil and a deep root system. So whether we have tons of rain or a long drought, they're really, really doing well. Hmm. And I just think they look cool. That that vertical rock layering, you know, it almost looks like a, a series of little skyscrapers, I guess you could say, or I don't know, it has something about it that's so visually appealing. 
Yeah, it, I agree. I think they're very, very dramatic, um, very, very cool looking. And sort of the original inspiration is geologic formations where you have the rock strata that through earthquakes or whatever has been inverted. So instead of going horizontal, you've got these vertical rock strata that erode to create those crevices. And there's some places in the world where you see sort of natural crevice gardens in mountains. Um, but it is, they're visually really exciting. I mean, there's all kinds of cool stuff within that style that's been happening. There's a trend now <clears throat> to use recycled materials. Um, so they call it urbanite, which is uh, concrete, like old sidewalks or whatever. And so there's a bunch of gardeners who've been making crevice gardens using old busted up sidewalks and, and sort of trash concrete um, that they've been able to create those crevices out of, which I think is really, really exciting. So they're taking a waste material and turning into these really beautiful, like you said, very sculptural, very dynamic, crevice gardens that then are great habitat to grow a lot of cool plants. Hmm. I love the term urbanite. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a, such a great name for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do worry a little bit. Is there not um, some lime or some other leaching from that sidewalk or concrete? So there is some, um, but what I've, what I've read is actually that there's not much once it's aged. So new concrete will leach a lot of lime and will make your soil alkaline, um, but older concrete does not. So a lot of people have been doing these, which again, they're using old recycled, you know, busted up sidewalks, and they're able to still have pretty acidic soils um, between those. So it doesn't have as strong effect as you might expect. It's not going to be the conditions for something that loves really acidic soils like you know um, your rhododendrons or that kind of thing um, but it actually does you can sort of have a pretty wide range of phs with the older concrete more than you would expect that is great to know joseph that we can reuse a lot of that older concrete and i have about half a driveway i need to <laughs> <laughs> to excavate and put on its edge now yeah <laughs> Well, that would be great. So speaking of um, the rock sources, and if you don't have uh, recycled concrete on hand or urbanite, as it were, um, I know a few rock gardeners in my clubs that spend a lot of money and go on special trips to source their rocks. Um, is there a expensive side or lesser expense side? You know, I guess we can call it a frugal side to rock gardening and then uh, bust your bank um, the best rocks you can buy. What would you recommend? So, yeah, you can definitely spend a lot of money on rock, particularly if you live, you know, we don't have a somewhere with not a lot of uh, sort of natural native rock around. Um so I'm a very frugal gardener because, you know, like you, I make money, my living, quote unquote, living, writing about gardening, which doesn't lead to a lot of excess cash. Um, so I, <clears throat> my little crevice garden actually is built with a ceramic tile. I got it the uh, Restore, so used ceramic tile that was very, very cheap. So I made a crevice garden just putting those ceramic tiles vertically in the ground and putting the, the soil mix in between them. So uh, I know people who if there's like a place that does like granite or other stone countertops, sometimes you can get scraps um, or like the sink cutouts from them that they'll be throwing away. So that's a good way to get sort of those big flat rocks uh, that's, uh, you know, more affordable. And again, the recycled concrete can be a really affordable option. If you can find somebody who's busting up a sidewalk or whatever, or driveway, um, that's a great way to get sort of the affordable side of it. And then certainly if you have rocks in your area, then that's, you know, if you're digging up stones anyway, that's a, that's always the good, great free option um, if you happen to have rocky soils naturally. Um, 
if you want to spend money, you, you certainly can. Um, sort of the, the rock gardener's delight is a rock called tufa. So we just talked about hyper tufa, which is man-made fake tufa. Natural tufa is a limestone rock that um, is very lightweight and, and in fact so porous that plants can grow directly in the stone itself. So you can actually create a, a whole garden that is just tufa and if it's watered right and you plant the right, plants right, they can actually go the roots down through the pores in the stone itself um, and make these really kind of spectacular conditions where you can grow a lot of really cool things. So if you, and when I lived in Michigan, there was some areas where there's natural tufa and people knew farmers who were pulling tufa out of their fields and they would go down and get like a pickup truckload of tufa from this guy's field. Um, but usually if you have to buy it, it can be quite expensive, but it's, it's a really sort of special and exciting stone for making you know, some really interesting rock gardens. Yeah, I've seen a few pickup trucks coming back down from Michigan <laughs> with, those, <laughs> with those rocks in them. Um, so it's always funny to see them like hauling rocks across country. That's just crazy. Yeah, <laughs> but it's interesting because it's so porous, it's surprisingly lightweight. So you mm. can actually have this a pickup truck full of rocks that's not... Well, the other thing that's nice about it is because it's then easier to work with in the garden because they're a big rocks can become heavy and unwieldy very, very fast. But because tufa is so porous, you can... Uh, it's almost like a lava rock type texture to it. You can move it around a lot easier. Hmm. And then for the soil mix that you would be planting in, do you have a special one that you create yourself or do you have a brand? You don't have to name the brand name if you don't want to endorse anybody, but uh, a kind of soil mix that you use. So it's interesting when I was working on the rock gardening book, I was like asking every, I toured around gardens like around the US and in the UK. And I asked everybody like, what's your soil mix? What's your soil mix? And everybody had something different. So my takeaway is the specifics don't matter a whole lot as long as it's got really good drainage. Um, <clears throat> so what I, my sort of go-to um, is to take about uh, one third my native soil, one third of coarse sand, and then one third gravel. Um, and I mix that together to get a really well-drained soil mix. There's some things I also, there's other beds I've done that's just pure sand. I just build up, you know, a pure sand over my native soil. Um, so you can do a lot of different things. And again, I really lean on getting what's cheap and available for your soil mix. Um, there's something that's often available at the hardware store called concrete sand which would be, which is like a mix of sand and gravel that's used to make concrete. And it's really cheap. And I find it's a really good mixture of sort of coarse sand and gravel with good drainage um, that I can mix a little of my native soil with to make a good soil mix. Um, if you have the stuff that's used for making green roofs um, for, you know, on the tops of buildings, that's often a really nice soil mix because they usually use a heat expanded stone that's really well drained plus some compost. Um, so if there's, you know, somewhere around you that does green roof soils, that's a good one. Um, I also really like adding um, permatil into my soil mix. So that's a heat expanded rock. So it's rock that's heated till it poops up like popcorn. And it's very porous, kind of like that tufa I was talking about. Um, and that's really great uh, for adding drainage to my containers. And added bonus, it has sharp edges that squirrels and voles do not like digging through. So I use it a lot in my containers to stop the squirrels. It gives me good drainage and discourages squirrels from digging up and eating all the bulbs I just planted. Mm -hmm. And chipmunks especially. Yes, yes. We don't have chipmunks down here. 
Yeah, chipmunks are, it's funny, in the D.C. area, at least, there's pockets of intense chipmunks <laughs> and then other neighborhoods of no chipmunks at all. So I feel like a hawk just drops them out of the sky one day and then <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how they uh, infiltrate some neighborhoods. Yeah. So now we have our rocks, we have our soil mix. So what beginner plants would you recommend uh, people start with? I think a great place to start is with the hardy succulents. So things like hens and chicks, some of the hardy cactus, um, the delosperma or ice plants. Um, there's a lot of those sort of hardy succulents that can take a lot of cold conditions, but often die here because they sit too wet. Um, but they're very, you know, if you just give them some really good drainage, especially through the winter months, you can grow a lot of them and they're so durable and non-fussy, you know, like, like they can take a lot of sun, they can take a lot of heat and dry. If you have a dry spell, they'll do great. So I really like a hardy succulents. It's a, it's a fun place to start. Um, <clears throat> and I'd also, especially given it's this time of year, small spring bulbs are great for the rock garden. So a lot of things like the species tulips and some of the crocuses, uh, the early spring irises, the reticulata irises, um, often they don't perennialize really well down here because we are so wet during the summer when they're dormant and growing in the rock garden gives them better drainage for the summer and they'll perennialize a lot more. So I found a lot of the species tulips are perennializing and multiplying really well in my rock garden. Um, and a lot of other bulbs that I put in my regular soil here, they kind of just dwindle away um, and they do really, really well in, in my rock garden. And for sourcing of plants, um, you can get obviously some of these at your local garden center, but I do know members of the North American Rock Garden Society, NARGS, as it's known, um, who have a seed trade list or, or swaps, or how does that work? Yeah, so the North American Rock Garden Society has an annual seed exchange. So if you're a member, you can get access to the, a huge list of seeds, um, not just rock garden plants. Actually, if you just love unusual plants, it's worth joining for the seed exchange alone. Um, it's it's a huge. I I got all kind. I get all kinds of goodies from there. Many of them are very large plants, not traditional rock garden plants. Um, so that's a really interesting place to get um, <clears throat> sort of you know unusual things. If you like growing plants from seed, that's a great place to start. There's certainly some mail order nurseries where you can get specialist stuff. Um, and then oftentimes, I'm not sure the. There's local chapters of the Rock Garden Society, and often they do spring plant sales, and that's another great place to look. So if you go to the NARGS, NARGS.org website, you can find local chapters of NARGS in your area, um, and often that's a great, you know, if you join that local society, often they do spring plant sales, or the, you know, the local members can give you good ideas of where, you know, what nurseries or where you can get cool plants in your area that are going to be well suited to your climate. Mm -hmm. And here in the D.C. area, we have the Potomac Valley chapter, the PVC NARGS is how everybody knows that. And they have both the sale that they usually do in the spring. And then I think they follow it the next weekend with the sale leftovers and a swap. So um, bonus there yeah. <laughs> for, for both of that. Yes. And it's so great to get plants that way because if you're getting plants from other people in your local chapter, then you know they're suited to your climate. Um, so when you get into mail order, you know, some of the mail order nurseries may be like, there's a great one up in Ontario and some on the West Coast. Those climates are so different that you really need to do your research to make sure they're going to thrive here. But if you go to, you know, the local chapter, <clears throat> pick up some plants at the plant sale, 
that's something that someone in your area grew and, and you can talk to the person who grew it to get advice on the specific conditions it needs. And you really know this is something I can grow here in the right conditions. It's not, you know, going to turn out to be like a delphinium or something that just is going to hate the climate down here. Hmm. And I know that you wear another hat, which is the editor of the NARGS journal. And like many of us garden writers who have many different hats on, uh, can you talk about that? Is it a quarterly journal? Is it only with membership? How would you read that? Yeah, so it's a quarterly journal and it's a pretty, it's almost like a hundred pages, um, comes out four times a year. Um, so if you are, you have to be a member to read the current issues, but the back issues are available for free on the website. And it's after, I don't remember how many years they become free on the website. So you can go and look up back issues of it on the NARGS a website if you want and then as you remember you get the, the print copy in the mail and then access to all the issues online um, as PDFs and, and digitally too. Um, I really like it. I mean I really feel like it's such an interesting it's uh, it's not just traditional rock garden plants. Uh, I think ro the Rock Garden Society is really like kind of like just people who love plants generally so um, I like to kind of push the envelope a little bit and explore more sort of non-traditional, some non-traditional, um, uh, you know, rock, not traditionally rock garden plants and topics as well. But it's a nice mix of sort of tours of gardens, you know, people's personal gardens and public gardens. Um, we often get articles about people who are going to interesting places and showing uh, native wildflowers. So cool places in the Andes or, or wherever, um, just with beautiful photos of really cool plants growing in wild habitats. Um, and then articles on how to cultivate specific groups of plants as well. Hmm. I know there's some fascinating articles. I was just looking at the current issue with Pagnotti uh, from the Denver Botanic Garden. It seems like he writes about half the, <laughs> the articles in there. Yeah, if you're in the rock gardening world, you're going to come across Pagnotti uh, sooner or later. He's a, um, a fantastic gardener and one of the friendliest most gregarious people in the world um i think he knows everybody in the gardening world so yeah he's he's definitely a, a force within the rock gardening community mm -hmm. and i had the privilege um before covid to go to the denver botanic garden and also see his home garden uh which was wonderful little rock garden as well um but i was going to ask i don't know in the gardening world there can be levels of snobbery say in specific plant societies um so how rock gardeners feel about miniature landscapes like railroad and fairy gardens i am all for it i mean there's there are snobs everywhere but i really feel like that rock art like fairy gardens and railroad gardens are just basically a different version of rock gardening it's just rock gardening with added props um so i think there's a lot of overlap there um, when I worked for a nursery in Michigan that specialized in rock garden alpine plants, we got a lot of people who were interested in fairy gardens and railroad gardens shopping for plants there. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's fantastic. Um, I'd love to actually profile more of those types of gardens in the quarterly, uh, the you know, rock garden quarterly as well. Um, but certainly, yeah, if you're interested in those types of things, the the, the plant material and the cultivation information would, would translate really, really well into fairy gardens and all that kind of stuff. And who couldn't resist sticking a little plastic dinosaur or something? I know that? it's the best. It's the best. Yeah, there's a um, a really great, well-known rock gardener in the community, um, Balthazar Minio, who's out in Oregon, who has all his rock gardens. He has matchbook matchbox cars 
included in his rock gardens. Complete, you know, everything's labeled. The plants have the genus and species of the plant, and the cars have the make and model of the cars on them. So it's, he's, he's, you can definitely have fun with it. It does not have to be a stuffy, serious, we're going to perfectly recreate a Himalayan mountainside kind of thing. You can definitely have a lot of fun with it. Sometimes it can get a little over serious <laughs> with the collective. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, I definitely think you can find, if that's what you're into, if you want to nerd out about the very specifics of cultivating really unusual plants, uh, you can definitely do that in rock gardening. Or if you just want to have fun with you know, miniaturized landscapes and, and, and pretty plants, you can do that too. There's a lot of room in there. And um, <clears throat> I feel like the snobbier wing of rock gardening, I'm in trouble for saying this, is like in Europe and in the UK. And I think the American wing is a little more accepting because... The, cult, the climates are so wildly diverse, you know, between Denver and here and, and you know, Georgia and Michigan, we, can, we can't have one style of rock gardening throughout the U.S. because it's just too diverse. And so I think it's a pretty big tent version of rock gardening in the U.S. that is open to a wide range of different plants and styles and, and approaches. Mm -hmm. And viva la difference, right? Yes, exactly. <clears throat> and speaking of going to different rock gardens. So locally here in the DC area, Green Spring Gardens has a beautiful rock garden at the visitor center entryway, the, the front traffic circle, you would call it, um, always has something of interest in that garden. So yeah, I was gonna say that I've, I visited that garden and it's really spectacular. And how about private gardens? Does NARGS or some of their local chapters ever do an open garden series? So I know of some of the local chapters too. I don't know specifically about the PVC garden uh, chapter if they if they do, but I usually they do. And I know often the chapters I was really involved with back in Michigan. A lot of times the meetings would be at different members' gardens, which is a really fun way to get to know them. I I honestly don't know specifically about the DC area. Um, I'm kind of like halfway between two chapters and don't know which one to participate in where I am in Williamsburg. <clears throat> Yeah, it was something to, to definitely ask about from your local chapter yes, and for check sure. that out. And, and I would say, and this goes for gardening in general, my experience is people who love gardening are so excited if somebody wants to learn about their garden that if you show up at a rock garden society or any other plant society eager to learn and ask questions, you're going to get invited to a lot of people's <laughs> gardens and given a lot of plants pretty quickly. Uh, so I, yeah, be, definitely be open to just asking people about their gardens and uh, you'll probably get some invitations to see some really cool gardens uh, pretty easily. Good point. So your book, Rock Gardening, Reimagining a Classic Style, we'll put a link to it in the show notes so people can order that. And as well as your comic book guide to growing food. Um, what else do you have coming up that listeners could either attend a talk of yours or um, other events? So I have, yeah, it's interesting in this, in this world of uh, everything's on Zoom, uh, things become quite accessible that wouldn't be. So on, um, on April 14th, I'm doing a, a, a talk for actually Guelph, Toronto, uh, Ontario's uh, uh, Master Gardeners, but it's called, I'm doing a presentation called Plant Shopping Like a Pro, where I'm going to be giving tips on how to, you know, shop for plants intelligently and get good, healthy choices for your garden. And it's actually free to attend. 
Great. So we'll put that link in the show notes as well. And great that it's free and online and accessible to everybody. And yeah. who doesn't want plant shopping tips? <laughs> that sounds yeah. fascinating. Yeah, it should be fun. I'm, I'm trying I'm going to give some kind of behind the scenes. I, you know, I've worked in different parts of the horticulture industry. So a little behind the scenes on how nurseries work and plants get to market to help you uh, shop smart. It sounds like those consumer articles that they always tell you at, at grocery stores to shop the outer margarine, right? <laughs> <laughs> so at, at our nursery, you're like, hmm, what is the high traffic spot and, and what is that other spot there? <laughs> so we'll have to we'll have to tune in to find out those plant shopping tips. Yeah. So how can our listeners um, follow you or contact you online? So my website is josephgardens.com and there's, you can contact me there and I have links to all my social media. And then if you search for me on Facebook or Instagram, uh, just, you know, search for my name, Tychonovich. That's, you know, I'm at Tychonovich on Instagram or in Facebook and I post there. And I, I have one last rock gardening question. So when it rains or we have a really wet year, like we did last year in 2020, do you go out and throw a tarp over your rock garden? <laughs> I'm imagining umbrella systems sitting up. Um, what do you do? Or you just kind of like uh, chew your nails and hope for the best? I mean, it really comes down to that well-drained soil mix. So um, I grow my thing, you know, my plants in like pretty much a mix of sand and gravel. So that's very lean and build, again, building up a raised elevated area to let that water drain right away. Um, so even though it's raining a lot, if this, the garden is designed right and using a well-drained soil mix, that excess water is just going to drain away and you're not going to have... I, so I didn't really have problems with things rotting out my rock garden last year. The only time I have done covers over the rain is during the winter. Um, so I've been experimenting with growing hardy aloes, which are not really hardy here. Um, and those I did, I put a tarp over them just for the winter to keep them bone dry through the winter because a lot of those borderline hardy succulents, cactus, aloes, that kind of thing, um, really cannot tolerate any water during cold temperatures. So I have done it during the winter, but during the summer, as long as if you have a well-drained soil mix, it's not, it's not really our problem. Well, thank you for that insider tip, Joseph. And thank you for sharing about rock gardening and your new book on growing food. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Plant Profile, Flowering Quince Flowering Quince, Kinamales speciosa, is one of the earliest blooming shrubs in spring. The blossom colors can be peachy orange, red, pink, or white. Note that flowering quince is not the same plant as the larger fruit-bearing quince tree. Flowering quince is an Asian native and was once a very popular garden shrub, but had fallen into disfavor. In recent years, new cultivars such as the Double Take series are bringing the plant back into fashion again. This shrub is not picky about soil type and is generally drought tolerant once established. 
It is hardy from zones 4 to 9 and prefers a full sun location. It is a rose relative and has shiny dark green foliage that emerges once the blooms shed. This is a fairly tough plant. The only maintenance it needs is regular pruning to keep the size in check and to keep the interior from turning into a messy thicket. It can reach 10 feet high and wide, though there are new dwarf forms now available from local garden centers. A bit of a warning, flowering quince has sharp thorns, so be careful when working around it. This trait does make it a useful shrub for creating a security hedge or as a safe nesting spot for birds. If you get impatient waiting for spring, the branches are easily forced into bloom in late winter by cutting a few and placing them in a vase filled with room temperature water indoors. It is also a great plant to experiment with for bonsai or training into different forms. Flowering quince, you can grow that. What's new this week? Well, the local gardening world has exploded now that spring has sprung. So we have a ton of events to tell you about and a few talks I have coming up that I want to clue you into. But first I wanted to acknowledge that the Cherry Blossom Festival is ongoing and through April 11th, the Tidal Basin Cherry Blossoms are predicted to hit their peak around April 1st, but uh, the National Park Service doesn't want those crowds down there and it's still COVID pandemic time. So let's be safe, everyone. And if you go to washingtongardener.blogspot.com and look at one of our latest posts, we have an update of our listing of cherry blossom viewing alternatives for the greater DC region. And those include virtual alternatives and in-person alternatives at local public gardens to see great cherry blossom trees. Um, and that includes, of course, the Petal Porch Parade uh, that I told you about in a previous episode. So that's going on in my own home garden. And uh, you can check the map of all the different petal porches that are decorated throughout the D.C. area at the National Cherry Blossom Festival website as well. And we have a link to that um, from washingtongardener.blogspot.com. And while you're on the blog, scroll down and check out our uh, Washington Gardener Reader Contest of the Month. We are giving away uh, Newt sampler kits and Newt is a new fertilizing system. So check that out, enter that contest. The deadline is March 31st to enter for that. Um, speaking of contests, <clears throat> we just hit our 50th podcast episode a few episodes ago and the winner we chose to commemorate that happy occasion is Megan Hess. So Megan, if you're listening, congratulations. Uh, you won a copy of the Deer Resistant Native Plants book from our guests that week on our 50th 
episode and that was Ruth Rogers Clausen and Greg Tepper so they'll be sending you a copy of that book and you also won a digital subscription to Washington Gardener magazine so congratulations Megan and we're going to hold more contests so keep following our YouTube channel and subscribe to that when we hit 1000 followers on our YouTube channel we're going to do another big contest and pull a winner from anybody who has ever subscribed to our YouTube channel. So look out for that there. Um, also coming up, I have a talk for Oasis, which is the Washington Metro Oasis Lifelong Adventure. And this is aimed for uh, people 50 and up, but they said younger folks are welcome to sign up as well. Um, so you can just Google Washington Metro Oasis everywhere.org and I have how to grow a vegetable garden and this is aimed at beginning gardeners or people just getting back into gardening to grow their first edible garden and it's Monday March 29th at 1 p.m. and there is a nominal fee for signing up but there are still spaces available so check out that talk um, also ongoing this weekend, if you're listening to the podcast in time, is a really fun festival that's going online. It's called the Gather Virtual Tulip Festival, and you can go to gathertulips.com to sign up for it. It's the largest gathering of floral enthusiasts online in the world. They have 20,000 tickets available, and it's all day Saturday and all day Sunday, March 27th and 28th. And basically, it's a tulip extravaganza. It's aimed at florists and flower lovers. So if you want to immerse yourself into everything flower, uh, happiness, go check that out. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener Magazine. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.